Well, it would be great if we could have that passage open that was read to us uh, as we go through it uh, shortly. For those of you who are familiar with this uh, passage of scripture, you'll know that it's about sickness and about death, particularly within a Christian family. Now, I sort of reflected on, on this uh, and I tried to sort of work out what was my first awareness uh, of death. And I was seven years of age. And it was in October 1956. My youngest brother was born in the July of that year. And sadly, he died in the October of that same year. Now, that had a profound impact, not just upon me, but upon the family. And I still have Michael's birth certificate uh, in the house, and I've had that for, for many, many years. And I often look at that birth certificate, and I think, I wonder what it would have been like. My name's Vincent John. His name was Michael John. Okay. Uh, and I, I often wonder what might have happened to Michael had he have survived it was a tragic event. Um, my mum, like many nursing mothers, would look after Michael in the night to give him his feeds. Uh, we didn't have anything, you know, posh or anything like that. We had a big chest of drawers, a big Welsh dresser, with a big drawer at the bottom, and that was padded out, and that was Michael's crib. And I can remember it quite vividly. And mum would... We would, would take hold of them for those, you know, the times that we had them, the time that we had them. And she would feed them. And this particular night in October of 1956, I could hear her saying, shouting, come on, son, wake up. Come on, son, wake up. And with that, she had all of him in her arms and she ran upstairs. Now, Jerry and Mary Dean lived in... We lived in 45A, and they lived in 45B, which is the next, the next landing up. And she bangs on the door, and we're talking about four o'clock in the morning or thereabouts. Bangs on the door. And I can, I, I can see, as a young boy, this has been indelibly printed in my mind, like, a, like a, a photograph there. Jerry and Mary looking at one another and shaking their heads and saying, come on, Alice, it'll be okay. Give them to us, give them to us. And it was at that point that we knew that Michael, that Michael had gone. Since then, my granddad, uh, my grandparents have died. I saw that. My father died, age 52. This is a bit doom and gloom, this, isn't it? My dad died when he was 52. My mum died when she was 48. My sister died when she was 45. There's a bit of a pattern developing here, isn't there? Uh, my older brother died when he was 51. And a few weeks before my older brother died, my nephew died aged 31. So from a family perspective, we've known what it is to have suffering and death within the family. Now, some of you may know that my younger brother, uh, Tommy, spent uh, just a few days short of six months in hospital uh, following emergency surgery on an ischemic uh, blood vessel on his bowel resulted in him having five operations. And two weeks ago, he came home 
And within a few days after that, he was back in again. But thankfully, he's back home now and he's making a recovery. And I noticed he put on his Facebook page, thank you so much to all of the people who've been praying for my recovery. And I thought that that was quite admirable of Tommy uh, to write that. Now, as I, as I was preparing, you know, to do the message for this evening, I've got loads of books in the house. And I'm sure many of you got loads of books in the house. And there are many books in the house which I've read. And there's a few there that I'm going to try and catch up with now that I'm able to. But one particular book uh, I had read previously, and I, I, th I knew I had it somewhere in the library, and I thought, I'll go and have a look to see if I can find this book. And I found it. And this is what it's called. It's called Sickness and Death in the Christian Family by a guy called Peter Jeffrey. Now, Peter Jeffrey was a Welshman, and in the book, he speaks of his own experiences. When he was preaching once at the Ballet Conference in Aberystwyth in 1983, thinking that, you know, the world was his oyster and everything else, he suddenly had a heart attack, and he knew what it was like to be almost at the point of death. So what I want us to do this evening is look at this passage and we'll go through it in some detail the raising of Lazarus and if you've got your Bibles open at chapter 11 we'll go through it just shortly because the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead wasn't our Lord's last miracle before the cross uh, but it was certainly the greatest now Graham was at Bridge Chapel this morning and he heard his brother preaching and he would have heard uh, Matty talking about Malchus, the servant of the high priest, getting his ear chopped off. Well, elsewhere in scripture, we're told that Jesus actually, you know, was able to perform a miracle um, and put his ear back on or recreate that ear. But it was also this particular miracle was also the one that aroused the most response, both from the, the friends of Jesus and also uh, his enemies. And of course, in this chapter, we come across three groups of people. All of them would have their faith tested. The purpose of this miracle was that through it, not only would the disciples, the sisters and the Jews have their faith strengthened, but also the Son of God would be glorified. Now, it's interesting that the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke have not recorded uh, this particular miracle. Now, perhaps it's, they concern themselves with the events that took place in and around Galilee, whilst John seems to have recorded uh, what has taken place in and around Judea and Jerusalem. My friends, the raising and the miracle of the raising of Lazarus took place at a place called Bethany. Now, Bethany, geographically, was no more than a couple of miles away uh, from Jerusalem. And as we consider this miracle together, you'll notice a lot of detail, and I'm glad you pointed that out. We can't extract everything, but we'll do our best to get as much as we can out of it. First of all, in relation to the events prior to the miracle, the events leading up to the miracle... And what took place after the miracle. And I believe this miracle was the crowning proof of Christ's own uh, resurrection. 
And we'll divide it up in this way. First of all, we'll see the message in verses 1 to 16 that was sent to Jesus. Secondly, the meeting that Jesus had with the sisters in verses 17 through 32. Thirdly, the miracle that took place, verses 33 to 34. And then the meaning and the effect that this miracle had upon the people who were there and indeed the effect it might have upon us as recipients of the word of God as we listen uh, through the message. So in the first place, we see the message uh, that was sent to Jesus. Of course, in the narrative, we read that a certain man named Lazarus was sick. But what was unusual about a sick man? If you think and know about the life of Jesus Christ, we're told that he went about doing good. He went about healing people of all kinds of diseases. And we read of no fewer than about 36 to 39 miracles which are recorded for us in the New Testament. So, so Jesus was used to seeing people who were either demon-possessed or who were unwell. In fact, it's great, isn't it, that we have Scripture and we're, we're able to compare Scripture with Scripture. Listen to what it says in the Acts of the Apostles in verse 38 of chapter 10 of the Acts. It says this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And God was with him because that's who Jesus is. He is God uh, in the flesh. This man, Lazarus, he was the brother of Mary and Martha. But more than this, we see there in verse 3 what it says. This is the one whom you love. That's what was said to Jesus. This is the one whom you love. Now, on reading this, there seems to me a sense of urgency uh, from the sisters that they would send this message to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. And when Jesus heard the message, he said two, two things. Look at verse four. First of all, he said, this sickness is not unto death. Now, you know, you could get some smart aleck come along and saying, well, hang on a minute, he died. Well, we know he died, okay, because we can see that now, can't we? Because we have the, the, the record for us. But Jesus at that point was saying, this sickness is not unto death. Now, it seemed a strange thing to say because later we read, when Jesus eventually did go to Bethany, Lazarus had been dead. Uh, for four days. Now, when our Lord Jesus Christ speaks about spiritual life, he says that Lazarus is eternally alive. Yes, we know that he's going to die physically, but eternally is alive. He's alive. And my friends, death, death itself is the everlasting farewell to this world. But in this situation, we are told that this sickness is not unto death. Now, it's also true for the Christian who dies that the death of the body to this world is the soul's birth into another world. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, we're absent from the body, 
and we're present with the Lord into the presence of God himself. So that was the first thing he said, that this sickness is not unto death. And then the second thing he said is this, and you'll read it there, but for the glory of God, verse 4, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, isn't it a hard lesson to learn sometimes that all of the affections of God's people are to bring glory to God? But isn't it also true that often our greatest blessings and mercies come when we, when we go through times of trouble and times of difficulty? Now, I know within the life of the church here, you've gone through times of, of trouble and you've gone through times of difficulty. But you can also look back retrospectively and say, but we can see how God has led us through those situations to the point that we're at right now. You can say that, can't you? You can say that, can't you? Of course you can. Yeah, that was a question. But you know something, my friends? The providence of God is often difficult for us to understand. One of the old Puritans, John Flavel, he wrote a book which was called The Mystery of Providence. Who can depth, who can uh, plumb the depths of God's knowledge and understanding? We just can't, can we? You know, because the Lord knows the beginning from the end and we don't, especially when everything seems around us seems to be darkness. And this surely was the situation with Lazarus. But this sickness and death, we're told, was for the glory of God. Again, if I can quote another Puritan, he's put it this way. He says this, if God is glorified, then we must be satisfied. Again, Paul in Romans 8, he says this in verses 16 to 18, and you know these words very well. It says this, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. But this is the key phrase. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And what a fantastic promise that is for the Christian man or woman. And then in, in verses uh, five and six, we see that the, the two sisters uh, actually plead with Jesus on the basis of love. Look at this, verse three, it says, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, it's an interesting word, love here. Is not agape love. Love here is brotherly love or fondness or affection, filio. It's a different word which is used. And, and they're saying, you know, this dear brother, this dear loved one, this brother whom you love, he is sick. Now, how did Jesus respond? Did he drop what he was doing? Was his reaction what you would expect from someone who dearly loved another. Look at verse six. So when Jesus heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. 
I mean, on the face of it, did he really care about it? That's the question. I mean, if we're honest, we've got to ask the big questions, my friends, haven't we? Because yeah, we're human, you see, and we ask them big questions, and sometimes we don't get big answers to the big questions uh, that we ask. Why did Jesus defer the visit? Did he really love Lazarus? Is there really an explanation to why he stayed? Well, I believe the answer to these questions can be found again in verse 4 when it says this, that this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. And also later on, following the miracle, in verse 40, this is what we read. Did I not say to you, that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. And that was the reason why Jesus deferred his uh, going to, the, to see Lazarus at that time. It also lies in the fact that Jesus, I believe, was testing their faith. And God often puts trials into our path, doesn't he? When trouble comes, my friends, how are we going to stand? I've already quoted from Romans 8. But don't the words drip off the tongue when everything's hunky-dory and we're all riding on the crest of a wave? For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Isn't it great to quote those verses? But I tell you what, it's a different kettle of fish when trouble comes to your door and my door. That's when we start to waver. That's when we start to doubt. And we'll see something about Thomas in a minute. You know, Thomas is there. We're ready to go. You know, gun-ho, we're ready to die with you. A few days later, Thomas is saying, no, nah, I'm not going to believe anything like that. It may be difficulties and problems in a marriage. You know, the average Western marriage lasts for 11 years. So for those of us who have got 20 plus in, we're doing all right, guys. <laughs> Two out of three Western marriages end in divorce for lots of different reasons. That's an observation. That's not a criticism. Some of you will know that I've spent all of my uh, professional life working with people with drug and alcohol and mental health issues. I mean, Birkenhead was called Smack City. Do you know that? That's what they called it. Because it was rife. And it's still right. And we're still seeing the aftershock of nearly 30 years of heroin use in, in the Wirral. It could be unemployment. I guess as I look around, not many people here have been on the dole. I know that for a fact. But I know what it's like to be unemployed. I know what it's like to get made redundant. I know what it's like to have to change career and do something different than what I was doing before. And stepping out in faith, believing that it was the right thing to do. And you know something, in the providence of God, isn't it amazing? 
It was absolutely 100% the right thing to do. But I didn't know it at the time. But looking back, I can see that that was the right thing to do. And my friends, the question therefore is how will you stand when trouble comes to your door? And of course, the early church knew something about that. You know, we're not, we haven't got the time to go through 1 Peter and look at it, but they were, they were being separated. They were being scattered abroad because of the persecution that had come upon them within the early church. But then Jesus speaks to his disciples in verse 7 because they were concerned that the Jews had sought to stone him. And Jesus replies, why there is daylight, verse 7, let us go to Judea. And Jesus' reply is that while we've got daylight, we have the opportunity to preach the gospel and work for God. That is what we should do. But if a man does not have the light of the gospel in his life, then he will remain in darkness. They're the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, not of me. He then spoke again to his disciples. Again, we see the love of Jesus. Look at verse 11. These things he said, after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him, I may, I may wake him up. And it's interesting, the word friend there, again, it comes from the root of brotherly love, filio, and it means my fond one. Jesus had tremendous affection for this family and particularly uh, for Lazarus. We see that the disciples had not really understood how sick Lazarus was. They thought that, you know, he was asleep and he was just resting in his sleep and then suddenly he was going to wake up out of his sleep. But Jesus spells it out very, very plainly in verse 14 when he said to them, Lazarus is dead. Now, it doesn't come much forthright than that, does it? Lazarus is dead. And again, Jesus declares why he was not there. He says, so that you might believe in verse 15. I'm glad for your sakes I wasn't there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, I go to him. And also again, later in verse 45, it says this, that many of the Jews who had come to Mary and seen the things uh, Jesus did, actually uh, believed on him but I want you to notice what Thomas does here in verse 16 Thomas who is called the twin said to his fellow disciples let us go that we may let us go that we may also die with him well as I said earlier shortly Thomas is going to show his true colors because when Jesus appears uh, in the upper room, Thomas is not going to be there. The disciples are going to tell Thomas what's gone on. And he says, no, unless I can put my finger in his hands and side, I won't believe. And you remember those immortal words of Jesus. Blessed are those who have not seen, but yet have believed. And then in the second place, we have this meeting with Jesus. It was now nearly five days that Jesus finally arrived in Bethany 
Lazarus has been dead these four days, verses 17 through to 22. Bethany, as I said, was only two miles away. And it was approximately an hour's journey. But yet Jesus had stayed in the place where he was. Now, you may ask the question, why did Jesus stay? Well, he's given us an indication that the Son of God might be glorified. And I think that there was another reason in verse 19, because of the, the Jews who were there, the mourning Jews who were there, because that was their custom. They come to weep and try to comfort um, those who'd been bereaved. And yet we see later on that some of those same Jews actually came uh, to belief themselves. In verse 20, we see that Martha then heard that Jesus had arrived and she was anxious about the coming of the Lord that she goes out to meet him. Now, this seems to be a different woman that we, that we read of in, in Luke chapter 10 where Martha is, is busy doing things, busy about the house, but she is no longer troubled with duties, but rather the reason for her brother's death. And perhaps Mary was so overwhelmed by the loss of Lazarus that she couldn't bring herself to go with Martha. We always see Martha as the, the industrious one and Mary as the, if you like, the spiritual one. But in this case, she seems to be absolutely overwhelmed with grief. The meeting with Jesus appears to be a confrontation. Look at verse 21. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Strong words, aren't they? Almost pointing the finger. It's all your fault. Because had you have come when we asked you to come, then we wouldn't be grieving our brother. We wouldn't be in this desperate situation in which we now find ourselves this tragedy wouldn't have happened but she was persuaded in her heart that all of this trouble might have been averted and they could have been rejoicing rather than mourning well Martha is quick to affirm her faith she's determined God that God's will will be done look at verse uh, 22 she says but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Isn't that great? But you see, Martha interpreted this in a different way. Because her interpretation of what Jesus was saying was that he will rise again in the, in the general resurrection on the last day. That's how she interpreted this. And then come the most beautiful words that we can ever read in the word of God in John chapter 11, verse 25 to 27. And these are the words. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And here's the question. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. Listen to her affirmation of faith. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, 
the Son of God who has come into the world. My friends, Jesus Christ lives in the power of an endless life, never to die again. And the question that Jesus asked uh, Mary was this, do you believe, do you believe and do you trust the answer that you've actually given to me, Martha? That I am the Christ, that I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of God, that I am the Saviour who is to come into the world, that I am the Rescuer, that I am the Captain of your salvation, that I am the Bishop of your soul. Mary, Martha, do you actually believe that? Well, after this wonderful declaration of faith, she went to Mary and told her of the arrival of Jesus. And Mary quickly uh, goes to the place where Jesus was. And she said the same words to Jesus. Look at verse 32. Then Mary came where Jesus was and saw him. And she fell down at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. It's almost like a, a collusion which has gone on between the sisters. But so much did they love their brother and so determined were they to get the answer to their question and the, the, the complaint of their heart was, if you'd have been here, Lord, then our brother, he wouldn't have died. On the face of it, they seemed to be blaming Jesus for the death of Lazarus, Lazarus. but Christ's delay was designed for the best and proved to be so. And so in the third place, let's look at the miracle itself in verses 34, uh, 33 onwards. We read that Jesus was troubled. He was troubled and groaned in his spirit. Now, I, I, I sort of looked up what this actually meant and it, it, it brings with it the idea that he was actually disturbed. He, he not beside himself, but disturbed. And his groanings were like thunder. Have you ever had thunderous groanings? You know, when, when, when you are upset about something and you're not verbalising it outwards, but they're just like murmurs, but they're loud murmurs which are going on because of the thing which have been happening to you or the circumstance that you find yourself in. Was it because of the unbelief of, of the sisters? Did they really believe that Jesus could raise their brother? Was it the unbelief of the Jews who were standing by, who were just there like to make up the numbers in the morning? If only you had been here, if only you'd have come, our brother would not have died. But Jesus asks where the grave is. And upon approaching the grave, he is filled with compassion and love. And yes, everyone says it's the smallest verse in the Bible, John 11, verse 35, uh, Jesus wept. Well, this is not the only time that Jesus has wept, is it? We see Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because he sees them like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus himself in just a matter of days and hours, he's going to be in the garden of Gethsemane. And there he's going to be weeping and groaning. And he's, he's going to be saying, Father, 
If it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, your will be done. And there in Gethsemane, Jesus is already experiencing what he is going to go through physically. He is experiencing it spiritually there in the garden as, as a sweat is like great drops of blood falling uh, to the ground. How true it is for the Christian that uh, Christ's tears and our tears shall be wiped away. His grief and sympathy are absolutely genuine. This is not the grief of a professional mourner, of a simp- of, 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 uh, but these are the tears of a sympathizing uh, high priest. And as the Jews looked on, some acknowledged the love of Christ for Lazarus, while others remarked, look at verse 37, what it says this. Some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? But they've forgotten something. They've forgotten what Jesus said at the beginning. This sickness is not unto death, but that the Son of God uh, would be glorified through it. My friends, Jesus was about to show to the unbelieving world his sovereign power because he is the author of life. Jesus is again filled with indignation and again these thunderous murmurings coming out. Why? Surely it was because of the sin and unbelief of those standing by. My friends, grief, sorrow and suffering are all a direct result of sin and a fall in a fallen world. Now that doesn't mean that you're guilty of some particular sin. But we are the recipients of the judgments of God upon our lives because of that original sin in the Garden of Eden. Well, Jesus asks for the stone to be removed. Martha hesitates and realizes that after four days, the stench of death would be terrible. And again, Martha's faith is unwavered. Jesus quickly reminds her that she would see the glory of God. He says her in verse 4. He says her again in verse uh, 23. Your brother will rise again. He says her again in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. He says her in verse 26. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. What an assurance that he gives uh, to Martha. This miracle uh, that was about to take place did not depend upon the faith of Martha, but if only she would stop thinking of a corpse and focus her attention upon Jesus, trusting completely in him and in his, and in his power and love, then she would truly see the glory of God. And you'll notice what happens there in verse uh, 41. Then they took the stone away from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who were standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And then came that thunderous cry. In fact, it was a shout. And the words that Jesus spoke, And it says, with a loud voice, Lazarus, 
come out. Now, I've read all of the... Well, I haven't read all of the commentators, but I've read quite a number of commentators who all on this verse said exactly the same thing. And it's this. Had Jesus not have said, Lazarus, come out, guess what would have happened? All of the dead would have come out of the graves. Such is the power of the voice of the Son of God. Death for the Christian, my friends, is not the end. And we do not believe in annihilation. Death for the Christian is the end of this world, but the beginning of an eternal world, a new life, a new body, a new home, a new purpose. That's why the Apostle Paul, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, says this: these words, O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally and briefly, what does this all mean? What was the effect that this miracle had upon those who were there and what effect should this have upon us? Well, firstly, in closing, let's see how it affected those who saw the miracle. Firstly, in verse 45, we read these words. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed on him. Well, that's a bit like Thomas in a way, isn't it? Seeing is believing. And that is something which you will hear many people say, even in our day and generation, I want to see it before I can believe it. That's what they say, don't they? Secondly, it caused others to turn against them. Look at verse 46. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Now, we were hearing this morning from Matty Bach about Judas, who went to the Pharisees and sold our Lord Jesus Christ for a measly 30 pieces of silver. It caused the Pharisees, verses 47 to 48, to plot against Jesus. It also resulted in Caiaphas, verses 51 to 52. He was the high priest addressing the Jewish council, declaring that one man, one person, should die for the nation. And that was true. And prophecy was fulfilled through that statement. But it closes with them plotting to put Jesus to death. But as we heard this morning, Jesus' time had come um, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, going over the brook Kidron to Gethsemane. But at this point, his time had not yet come. But it will come. So how do we apply these things to ourselves? And what are the few lessons that we can learn? Well, number one, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. My friends, as compassionately as I can, do you actually believe that? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the, re the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that in Christ we can rise again at the judgment on the last day? Do you believe that he can give you life, life which is far more abundant than the life that we've got now, life which is eternal? Do you actually believe that? 
My friends, knowing what we do of Christ, I guess I need to ask the question, will we remain in our sin? Knowing that sin leads to death because the Apostle Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Isn't it great that we've got good news? Eh? Isn't it great? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Perhaps you're one of those people who say, well, we will not have this man to rule over us. And there were many who said that in the time of Jesus. My friends, as graciously and with all humility, I say to you, you need to repent. And you need to believe the gospel. You need to repent of that sin. You need to turn away from it and walk in the opposite direction. And you need to have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, I trust our faith like Martha and Mary and the disciples will be strengthened, knowing that Jesus Christ is is the resurrection and the life. And say with Martha, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, which has come into the world.